Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 74 of the Criminology Academy podcast, where we're criminally academic. My name is Jose Sanchez. And my name is Jen Tesleen. Today, we have Dr. Janet Lauritsen on the podcast to talk with us about her career as a criminologist, her work on victimization, and her thoughts on the field. Janet Lauritsen is Curator's Distinguished Professor Emerita in the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Her research focuses on the causes and consequences of victimization, the social and historical context of crime and victimization, and quantitative research methodologies and data. Her research has been funded by the National Science Foundation, the Bureau of Justice Statistics, and the National Institute of Justice. Dr. Lordson served as chair of the panel on modernizing the nation's crime statistics for the Committee on National Statistics of the National Academies of Sciences. In 2013, she was named Fellow of the American Society of Criminology. She served as co-editor of the flagship journal Criminology from 2018 to 2020 and as president of the American Society of Criminology in 2022. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Janet. We are excited to have you on the podcast today and get your perspectives on your career in victimization research. Thank you for having me. All right. So anytime we record one of these episodes, we always like to go back to the beginning because we always find it really interesting how people end up doing what they're doing. And you know, something that Jen and I have both enjoyed is that it seems a lot of us kind of tend to stumble into this. You know, Jen and I both were kind of just like wandering around and then eventually we're like, you know what, let's become criminologists or somehow like the field finds us. So we know that you received your bachelor's, your master's and your PhD at the University of Illinois Urbana. They're all in sociology. But I've also heard that actually wasn't how you started out. So can you kind of walk us through where you started and then how you ended up in sociology and then criminology? No, sure. I think it's actually a really important question. I'm relieved to hear that members of the younger generation also feel like they're stumbling through. I thought it was just earlier, young, older people who had those experiences. I never had a plan. I did not go to college after high school. I went to work. First generation college student. After working, I've been working since I was 14. After working for a while, After high school graduation, I realized that I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be stuck at minimum wage or slightly above. And so I decided to go to community college. And I went to community college for two and a half years and then transferred to the University of Illinois. So by the time I was ready to transfer, I had two years of credit towards my degree. And so that made the transfer really easy. But when I went to the University of Illinois, I was a math and computer science major. And by about the middle of my junior year, I realized that that was becoming very abstract, very theoretical, and very weird. I couldn't see the application. It was another world. And so I had taken two sociology classes as an undergrad, and I just decided I'm all in. Those were the most interesting ones I ever took. I'm all in, switched my major, and put in 45 hours of sociology classes in the last three semesters of, of my undergrad degree. Then when I was ready to graduate from undergraduate with a bachelor's degree in sociology, it was a recession, uh, 1982 or three, I think. And one of the professors said, 
you know, we'd like to admit you to our graduate program, but we would need you to apply. And I had my question to him was, what is graduate school? Is it just like more school? How does it work? And I said, I can't afford to go to college anymore. I had loans. And so well, we'll pay you and we're going to give you a job. I could not believe that possibility. So, of course, you take free education at a school that you really enjoyed in this area that you, you wanted. And it just was, you know, if it wasn't for them reaching out to me, I don't know what would happen. So I studied sociology and I loved all the areas of sociology for everything from demography to social psychology to social movements. But at some point, you have to decide which area you're going to take your comprehensive exams in. And I decided at that time, it was a close call between demography and criminology. And I decided to go with criminology because I felt like I, I found it a little bit more interesting, more meat on the topic. And so I decided to study criminology at that point or deviance and social control more broadly. So that's how I, I got into criminology. There was never a plan. I did not grow up thinking I wanted to be a criminologist. In fact, I don't like crime shows, crime books. I don't read, I'm not interested in it as an entertainment form either. So it was never a passion of mine. Yeah. I watch some of those shows, but they wouldn't be my first choice either. I know, Jose, no, you're I, I love that, them. Aren't you? Yeah, yeah, I love them. Although, yeah. like, the more entrenched I become in the discipline, the more insufferable I become to my wife. Good. It. <laughs> Good. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, I think Jen can attest to this, too, but, like, yeah, we came into this. We didn't have a plan either. I remember... It was the spring semester of my senior year, almost halfway through the semester when I, I walked into a professor's office. I was like, hey, so this research thing you keep talking about sounds kind of interesting. How do I do that? Yeah. <laughs> and I think the reason I got some attention from the faculty is that I was the sociology students. Weren't, I had a strong math background and I had that background because my father told me, you know, if you're going to do anything, you'll be good at study some math. You'll always have, somebody will always need somebody with strong math skills. So study math. I liked it. I like numbers problems. I'm not, it was never good with crossword puzzles, but I love numbers problems. So I just did it. And, and at the time, because I was studying computer science, now this is the early 1980s. There were not personal computers. There was no internet. I was the only one, I think, as an undergrad who could do the analyses that they like I knew how to mount, I knew how to use a mainframe computer. And so they thought, well, this woman, this young woman has some skills that a lot of the faculty would like to take advantage of. And so I was in the right place at the right time with those skills. So I never had to worry about somebody wanting to hire me as a research assistant just because I could do some things that other students couldn't do. So it was kind of luck of timing in that regard. But then I found, got fast, I loved research. I loved yeah. sitting at the computer and I love number stuff. And so that's the kind of job I got. They had a computer lab and my first job in graduate school was to help all the other graduate students learn to use the computer, the mainframe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Then there was a lot of people who were frightened. Of it. And I had to teach faculty oh, sure. to use it. They were frightened of it. So... Like fun. you I said, a whole new world that they were learning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then uh, you ask, you know, so criminology, my dissertation wasn't in criminology. It 
it was informed by criminological theories of social control and deviance, strain and social control theory, but it was about adolescent sexual behavior and early childbearing. I was that's the demography interest I had found that very fascinating topic. And at the time I was got I became drawn to it because it was so clear to me that when they explained why young girls were having sex, it was always in terms of their low self-esteem and there must be some sort of problem with them. And while they explained boys as well, there's nothing to explain. Boys want to have sex. Wait a minute. Clearly some kind of important gender assumptions here that are going on that I found fascinating. And so I decided to test them, see whether certain girls with low self-esteem and boys with low self-esteem and do a comparative analysis of that. So I really was more broadly interested in crime and social control. So that kind of leads into our next question, which is really, how did you go from, you know, your deviance interests and the demography interests into more of the victimology subdiscipline in criminology? Kind of how did you settle these research interests and steer that way? Again, <laughs> again, that was an opportunity. So toward my dissertation development years, they had just hired a young professor, assistant professor, Rob, Rob Sampson. He asked students to apply to work with him on a project, and I had the skills, and I started working with him. And he was working at the time with the British Crime Survey data. And so he invited me to do some analysis and write a paper with him on victimization. It was about the victim-offender overlap. And, of course, I was very excited to do that. And so that I became interested in victimization and it occurred to me how little was known about victimization at that time compared to offending and deviance. It was almost like just a byproduct of crime, not really given much, too much serious thoughts in my view. I did that work with him, but I also was doing other work at the time. And then I finished my dissertation and it's time to go in the job market, but I kind of finished off cycle and missed the very small job market that there was. Again, it was a recession. There weren't very many jobs. And so Rob happened to be working on a proposal to the National Institute of Justice and asked if I would cons- want to perhaps serve as postdoc on this project if he would get the grant. I had done poor planning and I said, well, sure, that sounds fun. And then, and fortunately for me, he did get that grant and I was able to do a postdoc for one year before I went on the job market. And it was on victimization and offending, the link between the two. And that's how I met John Lau as well. So it really was, again, <laughs> luck and being at, at the right place at the right time with the right skills and the right people and recognizing an opportunity that you can't pass up. Yeah, it's, you know, Jose mentioned at kind of the top that we're starting to see these patterns come into play with these kinds of reflection episodes that we're doing. And I feel like most of the people we've had on have mentioned opportunity as kind of this major thing that's played a role in their careers, just having the right opportunity with the right people and the right skill sets. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's kind of cool to see that, especially as Jose and I are going that way. And we kind of are feeling in the same boat. So to see these people that we admire and have done great work kind of follow a similar trajectory is really cool. Yeah. I think I blame high school guidance counselors for pushing, (laughs) just make a plan and make it your passion and self going to work out. And and I don't think most, how could you possibly know 
yeah. as a young person, what's out there, first of all, it's changing. How does your counselor, you have to be prepared and trust your instinct and just keep learning and keep your eyes open and for these opportunities and hopefully they'll come. Yeah, so once I did that postdoc with him, then I'm still doing other work. I had gone on the job market to get to begin an academic career. I was still doing other work on adolescent sexual behavior, some methodology stuff. We were working on papers about the victim offender overlap from that grant. And that took me basically through different types of research through about the tenure decision. And then the opportunity came up for working with the National Crime Victimization Survey, the geocoded confidential files for the first time being released at the University of Pittsburgh and through Al Bloomstein's work with the National Consortium of Violence Research. Rob Sampson was a member of the steering committee for that. He and I had been studying contextual effects with the British Crime Survey on victimization and offending. We've taken that as far as we can. And so when he said, you know, here's an opportunity, I don't have time for it, but I think you'd be, this is right up your alley. And I, I was able to take advantage of that. And I was hooked then. That was the beginning of all that victimization. All the victimization. Mm-hmm. Cool. Mm-hmm. Since yeah. then. So that was about 25 years ago. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. So you've mentioned Rob Sampson a couple of times and you know we've recorded an episode with Rob and you know when you talked about him you said a young assistant professor I think these days you know we kind of consider him one of the heavy hitters in the field but there was also a couple other people in your department at the time that we would consider you know pretty heavy hitters in their own right. You know, Michael Godfordson was there, I'm guessing also as a young assistant professor. And I don't know how much overlap you had, but I believe Marcus Felsen was also there. And so (laughs) we're just wondering, how did they influence and shape your career? You've talked about working with Rob on several projects and how that's kind of really started to cement your interest in victimization. But we're wondering about maybe some of the other people in the department that might have had an influence on you and your work? So Michael Gofferson was there while I was an undergrad, but he left around the time that Rob came. So I only had one class that he was involved in. And it turns out it was what we call a research practicum where each graduate student had to do 40 telephone interviews for a survey. And he really had to learn the ins and outs of survey research. And I learned I had great respect for him, but I didn't have a personal relationship with him. I didn't take another class with him and he was gone. You mentioned Marcus Felsen. I took a class with him, but I wasn't interested in crime at the time. There were other criminologists there too. Ken Land was there while I was an undergrad of Land and McCall and Land and Cantor and, and CBS work. But so there was a lot of coming and going of faculty there. And to your point that, you know, everybody sees scholars like Rob Sampson from the present view, especially young people, know he was just a few years older. And no one knows how this is going to turn out for anyone. Same with John Love. He was just a young assistant professor. They had gone to graduate school together. And we were only a few years apart. So I would say to you, that's like young people, that there are young assistant professors that you probably know that you know they're pretty smart and you should 
hang out with them and <laughs> try to learn from each other and see they could be the next, you know, they could have some really great trajectory and of ideas and intellectual imagination that will help you. So I didn't know they were going to be who they were. I was sort of shocked too, because I knew them from the beginning and really did good work, but there were a lot of people who do good work. I didn't know hmm, what would happen. So yeah. They weren't who they are now. <laughs> they were Stockholm Prize winners. <laughs> they were trying to get tenure. <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> All right. So kind of our last question, kind of reflecting back on your career, has to do with your career at UMSL. And something that we thought was interesting was when we think about a lot of professors that we know, looking back on their careers, most of them move around at least to one other university, if not more. But you went to the University of Missouri St. Louis and you stayed there for your entire career. And so we just want to kind of know, you know, how did you end up at um changed over time and what were your experiences like there? Yeah, that's a good question. It was never my plan to stay there my whole career. I thought I'd give three years, see how it works out. And there were many offers along the way that I turned down for one reason or another. I think the main question when I was younger is, where can I find a better working environment? I never left or made a decision based on money because you could get an offer if you have a good record some other place. It's, you know, just assume that that's the case. Why would you go to another place? What is it that you're going to get from that place? And I had just the best colleagues. They came and went and many of them are lifelong friends and I learned so much from them. I hope that they learned some things from me. We would have Great conversations from everything from qualitative work to time series work to different topics. And where else would I be able to find that kind of also both collegiality, but just good, really smart people? We always hire really smart people and recognize talent. I think one thing that I do remember when I was young, one thing that you're like, well, I don't want people that are too talented because then I'm going to lose my job because they're going (laughs) to recognize what a fraud I am. But try to get over that. (laughs) If you have those insecurities, like many of us do, it's like just, just, you know, I just couldn't have imagined a better set of colleagues for all those years. I learned so much from them. That's why I mainly stayed there. Then the life comes along and you get married to someone who has a job at the same place and then you have to find two. Now that's those situations. My husband and I did get offers to go elsewhere. Rick Rosenfeld is my husband. Some people know, but then we had to figure out how it's going to work for both of us. And then by then you have roots and you have children in the area or you have family nearby and responsibilities. So it's harder to move as you get older. And then if you have a pension, you stay for the benefits. (laughs) Um, yeah it's pretty simple in my case yeah yeah and we've always heard great things about umzel too from all different people and about you know the colleagues and just the general environment it's always been yeah just everyone's like i yeah it was fun and people that have left we've heard that they miss it at times and yeah i'm glad to hear that too i mean that's a real real nice thing. And it's about people, right? 
So mm-hmm. it's people and respect for each other and picking your battles and not being afraid to disagree. It's fine to disagree. Disagree with my husband all the time on matters of education. It's okay. Win some, lose some. You know, it's all right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we'd like to start moving into the article that you sent us that we're going to discuss today. So it's co-authored by our guest Janet and her colleague Mary Beth Rezi. 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 Mm -hmm. It's titled "Victimization Trends and Correlates: Macro and Micro Influences and New Directions for Research." It was published in the Annual Review of Criminology in 2018, and in this paper. Janet and Mary Beth aim to take stock of the broad and diverse literature on victimization. They highlight some of the similarities and differences in the trends and correlates of victimization. They draw attention to the remaining gaps in the literature, offering scholars any new directions. And the paper discusses correlates at the individual, the household, family, community, and national and subnational levels. And so the First question we always like to ask when we're discussing papers or books is what was the motivation behind writing this piece and like what drove you to sort of structure it the way that you did? Yeah. So there were two things going on at the time. This appeared in the first volume of the annual review of criminology. And I've never been part of that editorial board, but they approached me and I think they wanted a piece on victimization, a general piece, reviewing the state of literature and victimization. And they gave me kind of these parameters to work with. They wanted to know about trends and correlates. And at the time, the second impetus at the time, I had just begun working with a group of researchers and the Bureau of Justice Statistics on developing an assessment of the state of the literature on victimization correlates because of the planned redesign of the National Crime Victimization Survey, which is going to go into the field next year. And so what my job was with the Bureau of Justice Statistics was to work with David Cantor, who has been long affiliated with the survey for longer than I am. And our job was to summarize this literature and make recommendations to the Bureau of Statistics about what should be included or considered for inclusion in the survey, what kind of items should be in there, given what we've learned about victimization over the past 30 years, and then whether they were feasible to include in a survey of this kind. And so I already was doing the review, and Mary Beth was a research assistant of mine, and she had helped me with that. And so she uh, was natural to help me with this paper summarizing the literature. So we had gone quite, there had not been a state-of-the-art assessment, kind of a general view of what we know at this point in time on victimization. And so what she and I had done is gone through all the national and international data sets on victimization, anything in the U.S., that would be about victimization, like the Violence Against Women survey, surveys of families and household, longitudinal survey of bad health, et cetera, et cetera. We went through all these to try to find uh, what the correlates are, which ones were robust, which ones did we have most confidence in, and just we used our own judgment for that. We didn't do a meta-analysis for this, but we used sort of informed wisdom Dave Cantor and I for the survey, and then Mary Beth and I for drawing our conclusions about what needed to be done. So that was the background of the paper. And we had to do it in a very strict number of pages. 
for the annual review. So there were lots of things we couldn't talk about. Yeah, yeah. They're very strict with the requirements. Mm-hmm. All right. So during the paper, as we've mentioned, you looked at correlations of victimizations in levels and first differences. And mm-hmm. levels suggested common underlying trends, and the first differences suggested similar fluctuations in year to year changes. Exactly. So, exactly. first, for those listeners and maybe me and Jose too, that maybe don't exactly know what a first difference is. Can you just briefly describe what a first difference or first differences are? Yeah, very briefly. So if you imagine you have a time trend and the rates and the rates go from 10 to 15 to 10 to 5. What the first difference is, is that the actual level correlation would be studying the 10 to 15 to 10 to 5. But the first difference is simply the value of the difference between time at this point and time at the prior point. So to go from 10 to 15 is plus 5. And to go from 15 to 10 is minus 5. And to go from 10 to 5 is another minus 5. And so instead of looking at the correlation in two trends, in the rates, you're looking at those numbers instead. And what that tells you is whether what first difference correlations are are used for as a starting stage in time trend analysis is to, instead of looking at the long-term trend, the similarities in the long-term view, you're looking for something with more causal strength and that can rule out a spurious correlation more easily. And that is our year-to-year changes following each other in a patterned way. If there are, then it's less likely that that original correlation is spurious and it's stronger evidence that the two are related either because they have causal influences on each other or because they share a common underlying factor. That's the short answer. It's a common technique in time series, which doesn't happen very much in criminology trend analysis, but it's a common technique. Perfect. And so then kind of going back to these overall correlations, can you just tell us more about what you found generally? Sure. So we do in the beginning, what we do in this paper is we try to make the point that the the field of victimization has been bifurcated and it's been highly specialized by type of violence or or characteristic of victims. And what we wanted to show or do for the first time is just make the point that the crimes that criminologists tend to study with their police data or victimization survey data, the trends in those crimes have a lot of similarity to the trends in other types of crimes that are not normally considered in the field, like child abuse, child homicide, intimate partner violence, family violence, and a writ large. So we wanted to show, or to at least take a look at and have people who work in these different areas of victimization think about why should there be such similarities in these trends? What is driving both of them in similar or different ways over time? I think it's to spark an intellectual imagination about the topic, not to provide an answer. But the fact that we find strong correlations in levels It's not surprising. It's easy to find a strong correlation with any kind of time trend. 
there's even websites about with funny examples I used to use in class, like number of drownings per year and number of films Nicolas Cage shows up in, you know, it's like, they're highly correlated. It's like, so what? I'm serious. That's an example you'll find on the yeah. web. Okay. But what we also show them in first differences and say, it's, these are still significant correlations and they're actually quite, some of them are quite large. So why would you expect child homicide to be so strongly correlated in first differences with child abuse? Well, you can think of why that would be the case, but why with serious non-lethal violence in the entire population at the same time, since children component is fortunately very small of that, what could be driving these similarities? And so we wanted to prompt both sides, the traditional criminological approach and other side of the specialization to think about these shared possibilities over time. Are they changes in social control over time? Social control agents, formal and informal. Are they changes in motivations or propensities for violence over time? Or are they changes in exposure over time to motivated offenders? You know, what's going on here? But there are shared, there are significant shared patterns that create a new puzzle. Okay, so now going to the individual level, correlates of victimization, and you know, here we're talking about things like demographic characteristics, behaviors, or the situations that people may find themselves in. Can you give us a sense as to what were the strong or what correlates strongly with victimization at the individual level? Sure. I think what most people would criminologists wouldn't be surprised about is that age is one of the strongest correlates of violent victimization. Younger people are more likely to be victimized. But also another strong one is marital status, particularly married people are at much lower risk than other groups, especially than divorced or separated persons. So those kind of demographic characteristics have been examined for as long as the NCBS has been around. But some of those are persistent over time, like age and marital status, but others like sex are not. The males for much of the past 50 years almost now have had higher risks of serial violence, but that gap has closed and it's gone now. And so the question is, why would that correlate an individual of victimization have changed so much? You know, what is driving that? That's some work that I'm still currently doing with Karen Heimer and some of the colleagues. Of all the other kind of personal characteristics, the one that has had some good Results, but it's much weaker, is low self-control for a variety of reasons. I mean, it's sensitive to control factors, some of these correlates. But then the really the largest correlates of whether or not one is going to be a victim of crime is whether in the current period is whether they were a victim of crime in the past year or so, and whether or not they're involved in offending or deviant behaviors that put them at risk in the situation. Those are robust correlates. And one of the things, the point that John Laub and I made many years ago is that, you know, it's surprising in some ways that you take have one of the largest correlates of offending and involvement in crime. It's so rarely in the past been studied with offending, and that is victimization. We wouldn't ignore any other correlate that had such a large effect, but there were lots of reasons why that got ignored. And one is that 
people didn't think about it, but the second is that feared that there was kind of a victim blaming. You'd be doing victim blaming if you said, well, if you're involved in gang life or distributing narcotics on the corner, or if you're involved in prostitution or something like that, that you're, you, of course, you're no, doesn't you deserve to be victimized. We're, we're simply making a point that those are very, you're being exposed to very dangerous situations and offenders without social control, uh, guardians near to help you. So the issue for those are so strong that they require, I think, the most serious attention. And, and that is that what can we learn about the factors that might break that link? Why is it that in some neighborhoods, there has been some research on that, in some neighborhoods, being a victim of a crime for an adolescent doesn't lead to retaliation and a cycle of violence? What is the mechanism? That's what I think is an important area at the individual. Okay, so moving into the section on household and family level correlates. Jose texted me about this while we were going through the outline and he was like questioning the section because he noticed that it was a lot shorter compared to the others. And he was like, is this because it's a reflection on the state of the evidence for these two correlates compared to the other information or what's going on here? So can you just provide some insight? Is it short because there's just not as much information on household and family, or is there some other reason? Yeah, I think there's less attention to it, certainly, in the literature. I think one of the, this is not the case, though, as much in areas of family violence, but in other forms of violence, there's been less attention paid to it. And part of that is that, well, some researchers assume that, well, there can't be anything going on in the household. It's really more likely perhaps just to be a compositional effect that it's just spurious. It's just coincidence that these things are correlated with with risk. But in fact, they're not. So I'd done some research earlier on, for example, if you look at single parent living with one parent or two parent. Now, the, the youth who lived in single parent families have higher risk for violent victimization. And part of that, you would say is, well, it's probably associated with economic status. There's not two incomes, there's one. And therefore, it's associated with the neighborhood you live in. And therefore, you really have to control for a lot of things to make sense of that correlate. I was able to do that, though. I still found this effect of being in a single-parent family not, that was associated with higher risk, but it was not even... It was not just a regular effect. It was one that was exacerbated in the most disadvantaged areas. It didn't matter as much if you had one or two parents, if you lived in an advantaged area where there were probably more social controls around. But when you were in a disadvantaged area, living with just one parent seemed to put you at more risk. And we don't know exactly why that is. It could be because of the nature of the kinds of situations that those kids are in. Maybe they're unsupervised uh, more after school, or maybe there's problems with who's coming into the household, or we don't know what it is, but it is there. And I think it requires kind of a rethinking of what kind of data we need to answer those questions, because those correlates are correlated with individual characteristics and community characteristics. More research. 
More research. <laughs> More thought out research plans too. Yes. Yes. Okay. So now moving on to the community level correlates, especially regarding violence and, you know, especially given some of the work that I do with community violence, you know, some of the things that seem to be pretty robust findings is, you know, violence tends to be concentrated in urban areas, neighborhoods that are, you know, disadvantaged. However, one of the things that you point out in this piece is that there are some challenges with collecting data at the community level. You know, one of them being that the sample size has to be big enough in order to generalize the findings. And so studies that are trying to conduct this type of research will tend to only focus on one city instead Mm -hmm. of multiple cities. And so we were wondering how generalizable are the studies looking at community level correlates for victimization? Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing that this kind of runs the spectrum. It's an important question. The place level correlates of disadvantage are robust. I was able to use the NCBS to look at places outside of urban areas. You know, much of the U.S. doesn't live in a city. They live in the suburbs or the exurbs or rural areas as well. And so, and if you think, what is a neighborhood? What are we even talking about here? What kind of processes are going on there that don't look at all like what it looks like in cities? So, and we did find that the correlates, the socioeconomic disadvantage is robust, but there's some kind of different components of what makes up disadvantage that seem to be more relevant for some types of violence than others. So, for example, we found, I believe I'm just going to get this right, that for violence against women, it seemed to be the case that there were slightly different correlates than for stranger violence, particularly for women's violence. It was more about the presence of other, the magnitude of other single parent families in the neighborhood and the poverty levels more so than the unemployment, if you've tried to pull it apart. But it's definitely the case that violence problems are robustly correlated with spatial disadvantage, even across crime types. There's just slight variations in places. The mechanisms, though, the reasons why those correlations exist in urban areas versus suburban, rural, et cetera, I don't think that we know for sure because we just don't have it, the data. We know from some comparative analyses that there is variation in the correlations across cities in the U.S., from the Southwest to the Northeast to, you know, the Midwest. But that is such a large-scale kind of data collection. To think of something like the PhDCN project that they did in Chicago, to try to do that in multiple cities, you know, just astronomical cost. So we got to figure out what different ways to do them. So even the descriptive work. Right. All right. So speaking of costs and kind of difficult research, the final correlate you discuss or the final Mm -hmm. correlates are at the national and subnational level. And you mentioned that these studies are rare. And, you know, one of our questions for you is Mm -hmm. why are these studies Mm -hmm. rare? I'm guessing some of us can... Mm -hmm take, you know, ponder at this, but Mm -hmm. why do you think these studies are rare? Well, I think the easiest answer is that we didn't have enough time points, data points, 
enough years of data to be able to look at these national trends and things like poverty rates or inflation rates or incarceration rates and their relationship to victimization in a way that was causally robust. But now we are getting there. And it's still a challenge, though, because if you look at, for example, the NCBS data for victimization, it's having its 50th anniversary this year. That means you only have an N of 50. If you're doing a strictly macro level analysis, you put a few factors in that are correlated, highly correlated with each other, and you've got or you're already out of degrees of freedom to make any strong statements. So that's been the challenge. Usually the way criminologists have dealt with this in terms of offending is they do these longitudinal panel models of different places. Like they can do it for cities, you know, think 100 cities and look at them over the past 40, 50 years or whatever, and they get more power out of their analysis. So they can take a look at what's going on with much more precision and insight. But NCBS doesn't allow for that kind of subnational work. So you've got this for victimization purposes, you've got, you've kind of been hamstrung for a while. Now, it's not impossible um, working on some projects with, with Karen Heimer again. And what we're able to do finally now is that we're able to look at 50 years of data with the NC, almost 50 years of data with the NCBS at the individual level, and then attach all these macro level correlates to it at the national level. So we can see is, you know, what's happening during recessionary periods? What's happening when inflation is high in terms of victimization? Which groups are in the US, not just in certain neighborhoods, but which groups are you know, experiencing increases, say, in violence against women, intimate partner violence, and which groups are, if any, are experiencing higher motor vehicle theft rates or et cetera. The reason we think this is important is because most of chronology believes that it is or tries to find ways to affect change in the crime rate, victimization rate, make people safer. And so one example might be like, what kind of social policy should we do during severe economic downturns or recessionary times that might offset the expected increase we expect to see because times have gotten very tough? So welfare benefits, for example, did welfare programs have an effect on moderating the increase we would have expected to see in victimization? during the last recession? Those are the kinds of questions you can answer if you have a lot of data over time, you know, and then we're finally getting there. You know, it's like longitudinal research at the individual level. Yeah, for the first few years, you're just talking about 12-year-olds, you know, it's like, yeah, this is soon. but soon if you're around long enough, they're adults and now you've got a whole right. force to talk about. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, there's lots to learn still. Yeah. Are you doing that using like multi-level modeling then to do individual and then add in the national component? Yeah. Yeah, that's what we're doing. It requires a different way of handling for quirky statistical reasons. Fortunately, we have a real statistician on our team, not a criminologist who's taken a lot of stats courses. We have a real one. What we are doing is taking macro indicators of all sorts of things from the economy, but also you know, welfare policies, trying to do it with 
things like incarceration rates, trying to measure gender inequalities, race and ethnic disparities, and then look at how these things might, whether, the, for example, a social policy might benefit men more than women or women more than men, children more than adults. It's endless. Oh, yes. Endless. It sounds like it. <laughs> it's an endless set of questions, and that's good and bad. <laughs> yeah. Good and bad. It's more fun to not run out of questions. Yeah. <laughs> Than to hit dead ends. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. So, you know, just to kind of close out the paper portion of our discussion. So, like I mentioned, one of the goals that you had for this paper was to sort of outline what you thought were the future directions that researchers needed to go in. And so, can you give us a brief rundown of the future directions and sort of these gaps in the literature that you identified that you think need to be addressed? Yeah, I think we make a few points, some of which I touched on already. But, you know, one of the points is, you know, I really would like to see and hope that someone who has more years left ahead in their career would take a look at how changes in violence in the home, which is, we know, is an important part of the life course, may have had down, you know, later down the road, cohort effects, reductions in violence and victimization in the future. You know, how much of the decline in violence may have been related to improvements in women's lives 10, 15 years before. That would be one kind of way to link the violence that's in, that's, we know is important to outcomes that we are know are important later on in life. Second, I do think there's more, much more that can be done to try to take a closer look at the victim offender victimization offending overlap and figure out how to break that, you know, how to learn. And I don't think this can be done with quantitative research. I think this is going to require qualitative or some other kind of design, but just how is it that youth, especially in kids cope with what we know is our important experiences of being exposed to violence and seeing violence and maybe experiencing in themselves how can they come out of that more resilient and not go down into the both dangerous paths of behavior, but also for their own mental health reasons? So it's the consequences of those victimizations. Now, there's a lot of attention now to trauma-informed criminology, but it's sometimes a negative event in one's life has a positive outcome in terms of saying, oh, this, I'm never doing that again. I've got to change or a family might make a decision like this is too much. we got to do whatever we got to do to get out of here. Not that that we would like to make that those options more equal, right? Possible for other people to do, take advantage of. It shouldn't just require something that's for the rich. But I think that's where I'd really like to see so that we don't give up on people who had a life of victimization of one form or another due to the types of places they live in or types of families they grew up in. I think also trying to understand more about the mechanisms about socioeconomic disadvantage across different types of places, uh, particularly somebody needs to step into the rural and urban differences and the suburban differences. You know, in my own city in St. Louis, lots of people are, you know, yes, we know that crime is concentrated, but we also know that a don't have the exact figure in hand, but a good proportion, somewhere close to half of the people who get arrested or committing crimes in some neighborhoods 
don't live in the city. These borders are permeable. People come to places to commit crimes. It exposes people who live there to high levels of victimization, and then they leave. Yet we only think of the mechanisms of disadvantage in terms of motivations for offending, not exposure by drawing people to the area and exposure to victimization risk. So I think more needs to be thought about there simply by like, let's take a look how much of this crime is actually coming here and victimizing people here and not because of the people who live here as much as it is from outsiders coming in. And then we do make some reference to new forms of victimization. I think I'll leave that for another day. I'm talking about violence mostly, but they are coming and some of them are placeless. Mm -hmm. They are not about where you live. They are about what you're connected to, where your computer is and what Wi-Fi you're on or something like that. So there's a whole field emerging. It's like, what if we don't even consider space? Then what are the correlates of risk for these new forms of crime? They're emerging, increasing forms of crime. So those are kind of the basic points. I think there's much to be done. Lots of projects in here. I think part of the reason that I will say one of the things that attracted me to victimization in the first place was I mentioned not a lot was known, but also that left it open for me to step in and make you know contributions here and there, which is a lot easier to do if you're studying something that few other people are studying, rather than trying to study the same thing everybody's interested in right now, because it's the hottest topic. And I've been around long enough to see hot topics come and go. It's just easier if you pick out something that's got a long-term trajectory of importance. So I would encourage everybody to please get interested in the victimization. It is crime, you know, it is crime. It's just from another perspective. I think more people, or at least I feel like I'm seeing more research within victimology, you know, come up. So it's there, but I do feel like there's still a lot that's open with it. Mm-hmm. And you have now given, as Jose likes to say, everyone marching orders. So everyone <laughs> listening to this can get to it. <laughs> good, good. And it's not going to be easy. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> I learned something new every day from the NCBS working with it. Even after all these years, that's just that data set. I think you just got to stick with it. And most researchers, you know, one question leads to the next. And the best thing is to kind of be surprised by your own findings. To be wrong every once in a while is more exciting than to prove yourself right, because it leads to uh, new insights. And so we're not lawyers here. We're not trying to make a case. We're scientists. We're trying to find out what's going on and then ask others who, who might be doing qualitative research or what they think about this pattern. What do they, what do they think is going on? Because I can't figure it out with my method. Maybe they have some insights from the, the way they've been approaching the problems. All right. So that actually kind of leads us to the last, I don't know, five, 10 minutes, which is kind of wrapping up your career and talking about the field of criminology. And so we want to start off with what accomplishment or accomplishments are you most proud of, either as a researcher or a professor or a mentor, however you want to take it? Hmm. I think, I'm not sure I use the word 
pride. My it's one of the seven deadly sins. I just prefer to say which ones I found most satisfying. How about that? Okay. I think I really, really enjoyed my opportunity after I had been working with this federal survey to go and spend time as a research fellow at the Bureau of Justice Statistics on and off for many, many years. I learned more about how data get developed, methodology, just by talking to people who do this and who don't publish. That's not their job is to publish their reports, but they had more interesting things in their file cabinets than I've seen in journals many times. So I really am just so grateful to have gotten to meet and work with people I have a great deal of respect for who have to deal with the pressures of politics in the crime world. You'd ask questions by government officials all the time and you just turn around and answer. Not in six months after you've done your lit review, but by Friday, close of business. So I'm really proud that I didn't screw that up and that they kept inviting me back. And so that was because that was probably the refreshed my mind for teaching. And I think I helped them some because I had freedoms and time to study the research that they didn't have. They had other job tasks to handle. So that was, I think, my most favorite part. Sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what would you consider to be the greatest lesson you've learned throughout your career? <laughs> and I know you wrote that down for me somewhere. I'm sorry, I don't have a quick, quick answer for that. I think I could say that, you know, be prepared for anything. Keep an active intellectual imagination. The more I read outside the field, the more interesting things I find to do inside the field. If we worry in terms of the future of criminology and becoming too hyper-specialized and talking only to ourselves, But political scientists, historians, sociologists, economists, they all have a lot of really interesting insights about problems that aren't the same, but they're actually very similar in structure and content. So keep an open mind and keep reading outside the field if you can. Find find a way to create, it sparks your intellectual imagination. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right. So our last main question for you is, Just what do you think about the current state of criminology and criminal justice? And where would you like to see the field or the discipline move going forward? Well, you probably may know that I just did a presidential address on crime data. I focused on that because I thought it would be productive. I don't want to see us give up the facts of the field that we study and trying to do the best and most transparent job of producing those facts. I just have to have faith that that's going to matter in the future. I worry that it's not. I worry that we're under so many political threats and now that will be aided by technology, misinformation. Those are external threats that I think are, I'm hoping that people elsewhere have really good ideas on how to manage that. But the other thing I'd like to see is, this is going to sound this is more of a critique of academia, is less infighting among some factions in the field. I think we forget what we share in terms of our goals and the reasons why we study this. Our approaches may be different. Our politics may be different. I hope we can agree on science and the value of an open mind. 
and the role of advocacy as being different from the role of science. Because if we can't, then I fear that we're going to lose control, not control, but respect if we turn into a political, mostly political advocacy field. Why ask a criminologist if you can ask if you have more confidence than an economist, for example? So I would like to see just where those problems exist, that they be carefully considered, you know, thoughtfully addressed. Yeah. We can agree to disagree, I hope, all over the field. As I said before. Yeah. uh, That's That's just important. Okay. It's okay to disagree. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, those are all the questions that we had for you today. Did you have any last thoughts, anything that, you know, we didn't maybe get to that you'd like to touch on? Probably, but I can't think of them right now. Um, probably now, you know, we could have these kind of conversations for a long time. I just want to thank you guys for inviting me. It's been, first of all, I hadn't reread this paper I wrote in a couple of years. So I appreciate going back to it. And I said, oh, yeah, glad I checked that out again because I forgot about that subject. Yeah. But just thanks a lot. I appreciate it. It's fun. And I think it's a great thing. It's unique. And uh, I think important to kind of keep lines of communication open with all sorts of scholars, whether they're young or older. And, you know, I wish we had that when I was in grad school in very small worlds. Yeah. Well, thank you to you for coming on as well and sharing with us. These have been a lot of fun to do Mm -hmm. and to talk to people and learn. And we're glad that people find it useful Mm -hmm. and important and helpful. So yeah, it should be in a class. It should be required every week in some seminar or something. <laughs> I think we learn a lot. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And if people would like to get a hold of you, where can people find you? Yeah, I still have an emeritus status. So I have my Amazon email address. I'm still on the website and still have access to all of that. So the best way is email these days. I don't have a personal website. I don't have social media or Twitter presence on old school so you know some would argue it's better that way yeah i don't know how you find the time i don't know how some people find the time well (laughs) thank you again we really do appreciate it it was great speaking with you you too and good luck with your studies in graduate school and thank you thank you hey thanks for listening don't forget to leave us a review on apple Podcasts or itunes or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website criminologyacademy.com you can also follow us on twitter instagram and facebook at the crim academy that's t-h-e-c-r-i-m-a-c-a-d-e-m-y or email us at the crim academy at gmail.com see you next time time.